Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Hain, and with me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, Laura. We are coming to you live for the first time ever from our new recording studio. Um, our new recording studio in Lake Como. Which uh, has no chairs and no sound treatment yeah. and no uh, nuts. So sorry if we're a little echoey. Yeah, Laura just We're working moved. on it. Laura just moved, so we are in a new space. Um, and I needed to pick my paint color for my walls before I could buy a rug for sound treatment purposes. But don't worry. I've selected the color. Uh-huh. So. Have you selected the rug? No. But that's next. I think that I should get to select the rug, You don't frankly. get to select the rug. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, what's today? Today is October 3rd, I believe, um, and we have two topics for you today. We're going to kind of catch up on some. We rated them as medium, medium plus in size. <laughs> um, we've just got some things, uh, you know, to catch us up on some latest industry stuff um, that we're going to, you know, get into a little bit today. But uh, before we get to all of that, um, Laura, the rundown, if you would, please. The rundown. Should we say different stuff at the front of these episodes, uh, by the way? I, I feel like know. we haven't, we've never changed the opening. Well, we've been doing this opening. If forever. we did, we should have workshopped it after, no, like, no, no. like outside of recording. No, no, this is like a behind the music mm. episode. <laughs> Everyone's getting an uncut, raw look. Right. This is like the E True Hollywood story right. of this show. So, but basically, all we have to share with them is how I stubbed my toe on my desk just a few minutes ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, I think the rundown, I mean, the rundown is important. It's the same. Uh, we do a thing called AFS Hours yes. where anybody can stop in. It is free and open to the public um, where it is an hour where we give you time to ask questions of, like of us. So it could be about your work specifically. It could be about craft. It could be about business. It could be about just like our take on something. Mm-hmm. Um, Eric and I do them separately. So as many people can come as possible. We have those dates again, even though it is free and open to the public, the dates and the links are posted over our on Patreon, but mm-hmm. it's pinned and it is an open access listing. Um, but the fun thing is that it's October and Eric forgot to post about his last month. So here's he's doing ha- two. <laughs> he's doing two office hours this okay, month. Okay, here's what happened. Okay. I just, I was in the thick of some stuff. I was doing a bunch of work. I forgot to do the Zoom link early. And so what happened, because the Zoom link was posted so late, is only a couple people came. Yeah. Which, and, fine. Then, and then we got like way more messages saying, hey, I didn't see there was a link or I would have come. Um, so clearly that's on me. We will get that fixed. Um, which but, is another way of saying though, that these are typically pretty popular. Like yeah. what I really like about office hours is we get, you know, again, if you've never been to it, I mean, maybe obviously some of you will know what I'm talking about already, but like you just click the zoom link. It's totally free. Like you just come in, you don't have to say anything. You can just listen to the conversation. It's very free flowing. We're just going to talk about publishing stuff. We're going to talk about craft and books or whatever else is on our mind at the given moment. And it ends up, I think, being a really interactive and useful discussion that I hope bridges some of the gaps in this, you know, mm-hmm. in whatever people are looking for to get out of this show and community and stuff. So I would really encourage you to come. I think it's really been one of our better features and ideas over the last few years. And so um, come hang out. We have a good time. Yeah. So those dates are going to be posted this week over on Patreon. Um, also on Patreon is if... Uh, 
you want your work to be featured in our query show or our first pages show, send them to us. We're at printroundpodcast at gmail.com. And our big innovation about those is that we're sort of splitting the difference between having written versions of the query mm-hmm. show and recorded versions. Because yeah. um, in an in an, an effort to be as accessible to as many people as possible, we know that not everybody learns the best uh, via audio. So mm-hmm. we're sort of adding a couple of those in. We did written versions for yep. September. We are doing written versions, um, or I think we did written versions for August and yep. September. I think we'll be recording in October. And so like we're we're adding some flexibility there. Um, yeah. So again, that email address is printrunpodcast at gmail.com. All right. Well, Laura. Yes. We carefully planned out our sequence to actually get to the things we wanted to talk about today. Yes. And so my first question to you is, what did you do on your birthday this <laughs> last this last weekend? Yeah. Well, okay. So it was my birthday like a week and a half ago. Uh-huh. To Eric's horror, I took the day off, which was like a Thursday. It was unacceptable and it's not it was unpaid time off, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I did because, you know, my best friend had the day off and we went to breakfast and then we went to Half Price Books, which is my like OG and forever favorite used bookstore. They don't only have used books, but I mostly buy the used books. Um and it made me think a couple of things, and we will cover all of them. But but predominantly, um, I realized that we've never really talked about the used book industry. We on have print not, run. which is crazy because it's it's huge. It's huge, and I think the reason that it hasn't necessarily come up on this show or in discussion is because people aren't necessarily sure of the link between mm-hmm. uh, the used book market, which again I think everyone intuitively understands is very large right like i mean there's everyone knows a used bookstore near them everyone understands that books are bought and sold and resold you know a bunch of times all these things but unless you're like my college roommate whom i love very much but uh yeah her books cannot be resold after she used them once (laughs) (laughs) there's always like an animal you know Why can't she? Why, why she, can't she? Re- like, because they like get ripped scary. and like wow, damaged like a raccoon and like a, with yes, the books, like or? an animal, <laughs> like an animal. <laughs> today I had to. Today I had to buy a new copy of Where the Wild Things Are because my two year old did that to our copy. We yeah, read it too many times. An animal. Um, but anyway, so Laura, maybe the fundamental question is this: You work in publishing. I do. Which means you love it when people buy new books. I love it because that's how I eat. Right. And publishers love it when people buy new books. We all understand this. Mm-hmm. Because they've made a product, they're selling it through retail channels, people are buying it. Boom. Why in the world, Laura Zatz, would you want anything to do with a used book market? You're not getting any money out of that. What the heck? Why, why would that be something that interests you? Why would you be okay with it? Why is the idea that there is a whole industry built around reselling books that have already been tapped for their actual like market value to the people who made them. Why is that of any interest to you as a publishing worker at all? Yeah. Well, I I think it's first important to answer this question from the lens of just like being a human being that lives in the world. Um, Reading these books is good for the environment, right? Like it is their, their books that aren't going into landfills. They're being consumed multiple times. Um, There's a, a lot of, 
ecologically sound things. Very idealistic of you. Yes. Thank you. Great. Okay. Moving on from that. Hug a tree today, folks. (laughs) Uh, Moving on from that. um, I think there, there are sort of two opposing reasons why I really love used books Mm -hmm. and used bookstores. Um, And, and for context, like I almost exclusively buy used print books because a lot of the new books that I read, I end up getting sent um, from editors or books that I've you know worked on, yeah. I get sent. Right. Um, but also, like I don't have a ton of time to read print books, so I don't like buy mm-hmm. that many of them. Um, but I really, really love used bookstores in particular because I think out of every every type of bookstore I think that there is there is a level of access to a used bookstore Mm -hmm. that is deeply important for literacy and also the continued success of new book sales so what I mean by that is If you have a kid or an adult who is a voracious reader or they're they're starting to read or they are haven't read in a while or they're even just like looking for something new, a used bookstore is a very low cost way to maintain that interest or to foster that interest. Yes, it is. Um, And there is like for places that don't have really beautiful independent bookstores like we are so spoiled living in minnesota yes, we are. we've got a, an independent bookstore like everywhere um but there are a lot of places that are deserts from with 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 regards to curated shopping experiences yeah. so then people are forced to go to amazon or they just don't read at all um and a used bookstore for that tactile discovery sort of sense is deeply, deeply important to maintaining people's interest in books. Like I think Mm -hmm. that the success of a used bookstore is directly linked to the ongoing success of the new book industry. I think it has to be. I mean, I think that when, I mean, you really, I think you really nailed it there, but like, when I think about anyone who is trying to get into reading, mm-hmm. like the first thing you, you, what you need is access to a lot of different kinds of things mm-hmm. at a price that isn't going to kill you, you know? And that's one, it's the library, but it's also the, you know, it's the place where you can get this stuff for cheap, right? It's the stuff place where, you know, we have many of the same like you mentioned, you know, a second ago, like the idea of like curation, which I want to come back to because right. there's something really interesting there, I think. But like there's just this act of discovery mm-hmm. that happens in a used bookstore, right? Like it's you're able to just like pick things on a whim and encounter stuff that you're not going to have. And it's because in addition to being more accessible and being, you know, like you go to half price books. I mean, the books are many, you know. Much cheaper than they're you know, half price, <laughs> right? But like some of them are more than that. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like true. it's, um, you know, it's a, and it's a great thing because people are encountering, uh, people are encountering books. You know, and it's to me like if you are trying to sell all of the stuff you and I want to sell to readers down the line, right? Whether that's mm-hmm. for me, that's like 
nonfiction books about ideas for you. Maybe it's, you know, some sort of really, you know, compelling pieces, genre fiction, whatever it is, you are, we're selling and we are, you and I specifically are arguing for the existence of a reader that has been like enfranchised with a love of reading for many years by the Mm -hmm. time we get to them, right? Like you and I don't really work on books that I guess maybe, maybe you more than me, but like books that someone might come to very early on in their, you know, reading days, you know, and that, that, that relies on like that whole vision of that reader relies on someone having been able to develop a love of reading and a Mm -hmm. love and, and a love of, specific types of reading you know the experiment you know they've tried you know different genres they've oh this looks interesting i'll pick that up deciding what they like what they don't like like coming to know their own taste Mm -hmm. if you try to do that you can't do it solely on new books like that's really expensive it's so expensive and it's not so it's not sustainable you are creating your customers yeah Yeah. if you want to put it in the most pure like market driven sense like the used bookstore i think and I think this is about the library too in a really cool way. Like this is where like the reader that you are that you and I spend all day thinking about selling books to, mm-hmm. this is where they get created. This is where that actual quote unquote yeah. love of books that is like the mythical backbone of everything we do. This is where it happens and this is where it's actually gets grown, you know? It well, it's where they're created, but it's also where they're maintained. So it's important mm-hmm. to remember that the bulk of books, new books sold in this country are sold to people who are readers. Like these yeah. are not people who read one book a year. Yeah. Yeah. These are people who read a lot. Um, and that is, again, very often sustained. Like even just looking at my own reading habits, like it is sustained and will always be sustained by affordable secondhand books because again like going back to the reason jeff bezos was like yeah let's start amazon as a bookstore um is because books don't expire and they're rectangular so they're easy to ship and you know they stay good for a long time um and so that that readership is supported and maintained and that interest is not just created at a used bookstore um but it's supported there. And, you know, somebody might say, well, what about like ebooks or what about whatever? And I think like a lot about a physical bookstore, like the benefits of it are in a lot of ways like an access issue, right? Mm-hmm. Like yeah. I think it's really, really easy if you are not a big reader to go online, go on Amazon and go, oh, a Kindle's $100. Well, I'm not yeah. getting one of those, but I don't want to read on my phone. It's also really easy to go um, to go and start browsing and become deeply overwhelmed because you might not know the search terms that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. You might not know how to find that vibe. And the the people who can help you with that are booksellers. Yeah. And like that's that's the thing. That's why we are so obsessed and so lucky to have indie bookstores in the Twin Cities because they are curated spaces with professionals who are really good at what they do. And even when even in spaces where like one thing you said to me before we got on the air is that in the very best way, sometimes used bookstores are. 
they just feel like totally random. Like you just don't have any They're idea. They're not. I mean. Like, <laughs> you, you have no idea what you're going to get sometimes on some of these shelves. Yeah. And it's like that to me, like when you go, for instance, to like a Barnes & Noble, mm-hmm. which the point of this, this is not a, you know, Barnes like & Noble. Like also go to place. Barnes yeah. & Noble. Right. But like yeah. you know what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. On these different shelves, right? Like, and if you work in, you know, like, we can sort of predict, okay, you're going to get these new releases in these different areas. We kind of know what's going to appear on these different shelves. But you're not going to find a bunch of stuff there. Y- you yeah. might come across stuff you've never heard of on these. Like, you have a chance to actually discover something, which I just feel like in 2023, mm-hmm. when everything is so algorithmic and curated and you are so targeted every second of your life as a potential consumer in every single way the idea of going somewhere and encountering something you might be interested in at at chance like Mm -hmm. like oh that's interesting i've never heard of that no one's shoving it down my throat no one is trying to you know i'm not getting you know spam ads about it it's just a thing in front of me yeah like what a rare, it's almost like record stores type stuff. You know what I mean? Like it's. And to be clear, and, both record stores and used bookstores, bookstores are curated. Like they don't yeah. just like find no, books I, on the no, side no, no, of the no, no, road. No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. But it's and, what they are able to stock is oftentimes determined yeah. by what people yeah. are trying to sell and offer to them. Yes. So even though they curate at that point, um, you know, like it, there, there right. is, there is a chance, there is an element of randomness in that that is i think bring like like pushing that discovery forward there are very few times when i as an agent can like go into a new bookstore like like a barnes noble like a very like big sort of big box kind of thing and feel like i'm not working mm-hmm. um yeah when i go into a used bookstore i am surprised it's because you're detached from the forces you're used to having the curation sort your is stuff different. for you. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And right. so, like, in that way, that's why, like, I didn't go to Barnes Noble on my birthday. Yes. I went to Half Price. Because I was you like, have an association. Mm-hmm. Because that matters to you. You wanted to do something special for yourself. I want to discover a and treasure. that sounded like, yeah. And so, like, taking that, how many people are generating that sort of experience in places like this? I think the answer is a lot. And... Publishing, if it's ever going to keep selling this archaic and relatively impractical object we call a book, <laughs> like we have to have spaces that generate this sort of connection with them. You right. know what I mean? And it has to be happening at a price point that people can actually, you know, access them. And right. so um, that brings us to an interesting piece of listener mail <laughs> we got yeah. this week. Um, we heard from the. Uh, very good folks at the uh, Half Price Books unionized locations here in Minnesota. Yep. Um, they are currently at the bargaining table uh, with management. They are working on trying to get a living wage for the booksellers yeah. of Half Price Books. Yeah. Um, Half Price, if you're, if you're not familiar, if you don't live in like Texas or Minnesota or kind of any of the states in between, Half Price Books is... The country's like largest owned family bookstore chain. Yeah. Like it's owned by a family. It was started in the 70s. Yeah. It's called Half Price Books because the used books are half price, but they also do a lot of things where they get um, overs, particularly from like Barnes and Noble, because you find a lot of like Barnes and Noble exclusives at half price. Um, and they do 
bring in new books as well. And, you know, they also have DVDs and records and games ha- and I love all sorts fresh of stuff. books. Oh, yeah. Like, I go all the time. <laughs> it's a great place. <laughs> um, but, you know, we're so we got a note from the from these workers and they say that they've been uh, bargaining with their employer for a year and a half now. Which um, is, can we just like pause and acknowledge that for a second? A year and a half. A year long and a half time. is long so time. long. Um, and so... <laughs> They're, they say here that, they, you know, they've been offered a, you know, essentially a pay raise of 1%, which doesn't do it. But it also would come with a cut of from the profit-based bonuses of 6 to 7 of, you know, a removal. Let me make sure I get this right. A removal of profit-based bonuses, which actually in net this whole offer amounts to about a 6 to 7% pay cut. Yeah. <laughs> That's what they're being offered. Yeah. and. And so we are, and then, you know, I guess to add insult to injury, you know, they've been told um, that management does have the funds that they could pay, that this mm-hmm. is not an issue of not having the money. They're just simply refusing to raise the wages. Right. And, and this is a bookstore chain, which, again, I love. Yes. Um, but has forever prided itself on being eco-conscious and yes. fam- like, and it's a family business and they yes. support their workers and... And when these stores started unionizing and these are not like like these are stores that have employees that have been working there for 10, 20 years, maybe even more. Um, And it is so frustrating to me that we have a business model that we just talked about is doing huge and wonderful things for our larger community. Yes. And these booksellers are doing a good job. Half Price also does a raring trade in like used books. Uh-huh. So they have specialists there or not used books, like rare books yeah. that are used because right. they're, they're rare and old. Um, they have specialists there that handle that. And so there is so much like expertise yeah. there and for a year and a half, they've been trying to get their employees Book to get... selling is a hard and sophisticated in, a job that requires a whole lot of like... Even with used books. With, yeah. yeah. Especially no, with used books. It requires wisdom and taste and, you know, all these different things that make the experience of browsing a bookstore, you know, what it is and all the things we just called it essential. And so, like, we just wanted to take a minute and just say, like, half price books... You know, pay your booksellers what they're worth. Like we, you know, we love your store. We love mostly we love really interacting, you know, with, you know, the wonderful people who work there. And so we just, you know, let's let's get this done. There is Uh, a new call to action that's going to be happening on um, this Saturday, October 7th. mm -hmm. And they'll be ramping it up again because, again, it's been a year and a half and it's been a month since the um, since the higher ups at half price have said, no, we can pay you more. We just don't want to because we like record profits. Um, (laughs) (laughs) They said it like that, too. Uh, But on Saturday specifically, they would really, really love it if you could take them on social media at half price books, which is the company, um, but also. Um, the account, which is HPB Workers Unite, which is their um, We'll get these their links out account. there, too. We will. You could also call them at 800-883-2114 and tell them that uh, we're mad at them and that you tell should... Tell them Print Run sent you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> um, but anyway, we just want to say, like, in all good faith and in good spirit, like, 
workers of Half Price Books, we support you. I know that at least a what I'm comfortable calling and estimating as a vast majority of our listeners <laughs> like support you in your in your you know bargaining for a fair contract. Um, and it might seem like at a primary at a bookstore that primarily trades in used books that it might seem like you know this industry doesn't care about you as much or yep. that you are not a vital member but that is wrong for all the reasons that we just covered it's the same thing that you and i have tried to hammer home for folks when like warehouse workers at amazon yeah we're strike and obviously it's a very different job than bookseller but like any part of this is everyone's fight you know what yeah. I mean? And this go this goes for, you know, this group of workers too. And so we wish you guys well. We show you all the solidarity we've got. Um, we were so glad you reached out. And uh, management at Half Price Books, we um, believe you should uh, come to the table and get this done. And let's, uh, yeah, let's yeah. let's knock it out. Yeah. So we've got another thing to talk about we today. We do. We have so many things to talk about today. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... We don't want to bloat out the episode, so we're not going to spend too much time on it. And we especially aren't going to spend too much time on it because um, it got talked about We a did. Lot. We did a um, good number of tweets. You did a lot of tweets. I did some tweets. Which um, are on Blue Sky. They're called skeets. We tweeted. We yeah. skeeted. We bleated. Yeah. Um, all these different things. But of course, we were talking about... Uh, the AALA uh, recently, which is the like large professional organization for literary agents, um, it recently published its results of its annual member survey, and this is the sort of biannual sur- member survey. It's once every two years. Bi- We're about to have the the buy in yeah. semi. Se- I think semi annual. Bi- yeah, yeah, semi annual. Yeah, semi annual <laughs> is half a year. Gotcha. Buy is every every two. <laughs> um. Yeah. So. <laughs> Every two years, um, English is such a hard language. Oh my god! Yeah, yeah. That's why I refuse every two to years. learn it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so they published these the survey results of the most recent instance of them taking this data and asking people questions. And um, this is always a really good opportunity, I think, for the industry to sort of look at, you know, what's actually happening to you know in this instance the agents. You know, like. Are people making more money? Is diversity, you know, increasing? Not, it, the answer to like, both of those the, is not really a <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> I was, I was sound. I was trying to sound hopeful and naive. Um, no, the 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 data is if you listen to this show at all. Like one thing I will say, and the reason I don't think we have a huge amount to like, we're not going to just go point by point in this survey, mostly because there wasn't really anything that shocking in it, which is to say. Um, you know, the, you know, diversity in who is working as a literary agent is not where it should be. Pay is not where it should be. Um, you know, job stability and hours and support in-house and all these different things. Like, none of it is where it is. Everyone, every, none of it is where we, it should be. Everyone is concerned about the state of the industry. All of the usual, there wasn't a, there wasn't a single data point in this survey that I don't think matched up with like the broad ongoing narratives about the field, you know, that we've been hearing for years now. And, and you I think mean that- you weren't surprised by the fact that of the percentages of agents that make over a hundred thousand dollars a year, a vast majority of them are men in yeah. comparison to women. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, it's that kind of thing. Right. And it's all, and of course, like that syncs up with what we have heard uh, from 
people the sharing the perspectives. survey and publishing paid because means, it's the it's thing. the same mechanism, right? Like a survey is people sharing those perspectives, and we've heard these perspectives from people, you know, a number of times. And so, I guess instead of just like going through the laundry list of things that aren't going right in the industry, um, which you know, God forbid, someone base a podcast on that premise, uh, that'd be <laughs> that'd be trouble. Um, what I want to do is like zero in on like one specific idea that you sort of got at online and I know that I had the same thought and it just it felt like it maybe matched up with some under discussed things that we've been seeing over the last you know however long a year year and a half and that is the idea of like the sheer volume of agents that there are now especially how many new agents there are paired with what appears to be what you and I had been sensing and what I think a lot of experienced agents had been sensing, um, which is that a whole lot of people are becoming literary agents and a whole lot of those people are not necessarily being given even close to the amount of support and resources and mentorship that they need. Right. You know, and that is that is always felt extremely troublesome and. It is all. It led to. It's led to, you know, all sorts of different problems for primarily for you know the agents themselves. You know what I mean? Like it's like when if you're thrown into what is a very complex job without any in an apprenticeship model industry, right? Like publishing is like this is not something you go get a degree for. This is something you learn how to do by watching and learning and you know getting shown the ropes, right? Mm-hmm. What we what this survey says to me essentially is that no one is really showing anyone the ropes, <laughs> and I say that because um, there's just so much of the perspective shared in here. And like one thing that is is true about this survey data as opposed to prior years is this was much more representative of newer agents. Mm-hmm. Like we had the resp- the number I forget the percentage off the top of my head, but the the respondents skewed earlier career right this time through. Which is really interesting to me in and of itself. But, um, like, the perspectives they were sharing, you know, things like, you know, editors aren't answering me. Or, you know, I don't, you know, have the mentorship I need. It's like... I'm burnt out, I'm but burnt. I work 60 hours yes. a week. I'm not... I don't feel like I'm progressing toward making a livable amount of money because I work on commission. All these different things that all just feel like they are under the umbrella of no one is putting you in position to succeed, even though they hired you. And then you pair that with some data that you pointed out, Laura, that I thought was really sharp, was like 25% of respondents claimed to be... um, Drawing part of their money. So so 25% of the people, when when I was talking about like, do you get paid salary? Are you on commission? Are you on a blend, et cetera? 25% percent of the respondents said that they are also making money from either like ownership or partnership shares in their company. In other words, they're making money off of someone else's sale right. and work, right? And that's not to say like agents shouldn't No, it's not bad agency. in and of itself. Like, it's, it's, like you and I own an agency. Yeah, but we also, so that's tricky because you and I do own an agency, but we don't have any... Employees. We, no one works for us. Yeah, you know that's what I mean? True. Like we... Yeah. Right. But I think it's important yeah. to mention that based on the data, it 
from this survey, you can very easily extrapolate that most of the respondents of that 25% are not like you and me. Right, right. They are people who are working for larger Larger places, places, mostly in New York City. Right. And there is something that happens when you look at, okay, 25% of agents who are by virtue of owning or having a partnership stake in their company older more established agents Mm -hmm. so extrapolate that out to a less that being um a less marginalized group Mm -hmm. of people that are making money off of new agents who are brought in not given a lot of support have to overwork in an effort to finally sell enough books so that they can make a living to stay in this business before they burn out Mm -hmm. From the very beginning, that 25% of agents is making money from the people that they're not supporting very well. And they don't, and they are doing this across however many own people, as well as their own, um, you know, their own already established careers. Right. Right. And so, I mean, it all, again, like all of this just speaks to me, like, and we've seen it. Like the reason I, I got, I got stuck on this idea is because we see it all the time. Like, it's like, do you trust it's like in sports when, you know, before you, know, you watch something happen in a game and like the debate right now is, is, you know, is stuff, you know, backed up by data? Are you someone who's really into stats and like advanced numbers and all this kind of stuff? Or are you someone who does the eye test, right? Do you watch the game and whatever impression you have, like, is what your eyes are telling you actually accurate? And what my eyes have been telling me about publishing and agenting lately over the last few years is that a whole lot of people are getting, you know, are getting brought into agencies and very few of them are being given the tools they need to succeed after they get hired. And this feels like the survey data that provides the numbers behind that impression. And it just, it worries me because it's, you read this, you read this stuff and it's like, you know, burnout and, Mm -hmm. you know, being, you know, on a, you know, fiscal edge with your own finances. Well, Eric, I think you and I are particularly sensitive to this because we've seen it happen in person. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let me so uh, um without getting sued again, um or threatened to be sued again, let me let me tease this out a little bit for you. Um I joined an agency that had a principal, like an owner, And then one agent. Um, I was number two. And I received, and this and this was like a reputable, well-selling, money-making company, right? Um, I received like a good royalty spread. I Mm -hmm. received a ton of one-on-one mentorship. Mm -hmm. Fast forward several years, and all of a sudden, the very good mentorship that I was receiving from the owner had disappeared because she was adding more and more and more agents and losing like the wheels off of off of the truck right like it was a nightmare because all of a sudden the things that we had the freedom to do and the support to do to grow and learn etc were taken away from us or we weren't able to get feedback that we needed um we weren't like 
getting paid or supported even when we were doing extra things. That was another huge thing in the survey. Right. A whole lot of agents are talking about what they refer to as invisible work, Mm -hmm. which means you got to do a bunch of shit that you don't get paid for. And has no route to getting paid for. And this doesn't like, count for like editing your client's no, manuscripts no, no, no. before they sell. Of, that's Mm-mm. part of selling the book. We're talking stuff that just has nothing to do with your sales pipeline. Right. And yeah. And that was happening. And I'm like, I would be lying if I said that that wasn't a huge impetus to why we left and started the business sure. ourselves. Because if I was going to do that work, I was going to do that work for myself. Right. right. Um, and we watched it happen. And we watched somebody who was very, very well-meaning, but kind of kept having people who wanted to be an agent and the thing is it's really really easy as an agency owner to go well I don't have to pay this person out of my pocket I can just like add them and they can like learn how to agent and then if they sell a book I'll make some money and it's no big deal so that's that's the thing of it right there that I that I sense I sense happening which is that when you hire someone who works only on commission you don't really have to invest that much in them right. up front. It's not like you're paying them a salary. It's not like probably in the age of COVID, they may even be remote. It's not like you have to give them an office. You don't have to send them any supplies. You don't have to do any of this stuff. Like you can just have this person. And if it works out, then you get a cut. And if it doesn't, it's no, oh, skin, well. it's no skin off your nose, you know? And, and of course, you know, a logical person who cares about other people would say, no, if I give this person mentorship and time and support and probably some money, like they'll make me more money later on. But a lot of people in publishing don't think what's like ha- that. So that's <laughs> the thing that I want to get to. And I think anyone listening to this is figuring out, like is seeing the picture at this point. But like if you hire someone at a literary agency, at, at any job, to be honest, but like we're talking about agencies here. If you hire someone at a literary agency, especially at like as their first publishing job or as someone who is, you know, new to the industry. Um, I think that you have a professional and frankly, an ethical and moral responsibility to actually get them what they need to succeed. And in this case, especially when I hear things like I can't like seeing in the survey data that, people are having trouble getting a hold of editors mm-hmm. for instance that just sent sirens off for me because that is that's the job like that is the job it's if you are and what and it is you're right it is difficult to get editors to listen to you when you're young and you're new and they've never heard of you which is why you have a boss who does know those editors who introduces you and says hey here's this person that i have brought onto my team you trust me they have great taste. Exactly. You should meet them. You introduce them. You should talk. You should, you know, they help you find your network, right? Like when you, an ex, you know, an established agency, and this happens on the on the uh, um, on the editor side too, right? Like when you hire a new assistant or an assistant editor who starts acquiring, and I had this done for me, and every, you know, you see it. Like established editors will make sure that they get to see their fair share of submissions. They'll make sure they're in touch with agents they like. You know what I mean? All the things that actually help you develop the one essential part of doing any of these jobs in publishing, which is your network. Mm-hmm. Like, agenting is a networking job. It is a job about having a system of people around you. When I make my pitch to writers um, that I want to work with and they have sent me something that really excites me, what I tell them and the thing that like what I trade on is saying, 
I know who I would send this to, and mm-hmm. I know where we can get the reads, and I know, like I'm con- like obviously I can't promise a sale, but I can promise you a thoughtful read from these key places. I can tell you that you know we're gonna at least you know get something, like we can do some stuff, and I'm confident in my ability to get you you know at least some things, and um, they. <sighs> It just it just really frustrates me to see and like when I see people say that my thought is oh they're bad at their job that's not what I'm saying at all just I just want to make sure like I am not if someone is you know listening to this and saying oh that describes my you know agenting life or something what I am saying is that you deserve a lot more than you're getting mm-hmm. from wherever you work you know what I mean and it's and you should you should. Like, you deserve more now than ever before because when I started agenting in 2013, it was not this hard to get reads from editors because since then we have had 10 years of consolidation and layoffs and and like editors right now are really, really squished. They don't have time to frankly edit, let alone read their submissions. And so that shortcut to knowing an agent's taste meeting a new person and that is more important now than ever like there are editors right now that even if they're slammed i know i could go to them with the right project because i know that their taste and they will read it immediately absolutely because that's the job like that is that's the heart of what we're doing and it just when you think of who gets who gets signed on a whim and then mm-hmm. discarded? It's then okay. Oh, publishing then turns around and says, "Oh, we, well, we've got this diversity problem. You know, we everyone like we be- can't seem to retain anybody it's from like, not you know like, an upper middle class white woman background. From a job retention standpoint, we have to give people better than this. Like as a field, like we have to like if you are going to hire someone and they're like and it's such a it's a problem that really compounds on itself for the reason you just said, right? Like, because as soon as there are more and more agents sending more and more emails, suddenly the noise and the buzz, like, and fewer imprints, it becomes yeah. harder and harder to get through. If you don't know, like it just, it's an, it's a system that is making itself worse. And yeah. I just like, maybe this is, I mean, a little starry eyed or corny or whatever, but like when you and I started headwater, and some to this day, something that I really dream about and really want is like adding people. Oh yeah, like adding. I think about that all the time. Like I would love, I desperately need an assistant right now. <laughs> like you would not believe I need, I need an agenting assistant. Um, and you know, or even you know, other people at our level, you know, other colleagues or something. Like yeah, we want like it's not as though we, you know, you and I are a two person operation at HLM, but like. That's not necessarily, and it's it is by choice, but it's not necessarily by desire. But it is because there's a we don't have, like we can't do it in the way we know we have to. Like I can't. And and to like, to clarify, the way that we have to is we need to pay somebody a living wage. Yes, like I can't. Like and this is the thing that you know small business owners you know never seem to get like across any number of uh, fields, especially in like you know retail and stuff. It's like. Oh, just because you're a little mom and pop store, if you can't pay your employees a living wage, guess what that means? It means you don't get any employees. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it means you. Ha- it means that you got to figure some other way out. It's like I can't afford a worker. Like, and so it's not. And that bums me out because, but it would be ir- My point is, it would be irresponsible of me 
to just like put out a call and say, hey, I'm looking for an assistant. Who wants to do this on commission base only? Eventually, you get a chance to sell some books. You do it for free for a while, but it'll work out. You know, you can kind of get your inroads, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. It's like, sure, we could do that. But it's not responsible. And it's not. Here's the thing about that. Correct. That's not real job creation. No, that's it right there. It's like creating a job is bringing somebody on, giving them a salary and benefits and support and like yes, like compensation yes, for their labor. Yes. Bringing somebody on in the pro- in, in like the hope that in 5 plus years, it's more than 5 years now, they will make enough money to live on is not creating a job. That's that is creating exploitation. exploitation. Yeah. <laughs> like like even if uh. even if we were to bring somebody on and give them like you know, a reasonable amount of time and attention and access. And we, you know, are taking, you know, 5% of their 15% commission. So a third of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I will have made money on that so much earlier than they have because they're putting, than they have. So it is not a coincidence that when we left our old agency, which was, I think, I don't even remember how many people, but, um, I think probably close to like 10 people by the time that we left. When Eric and I left, we took well over half of the agency's income with us. Like that's because we were older, we were more established and we had that mentorship. And what that points to is that points to an agency that is not sustainable. And in fact, it did collapse. You know, we have seen that at other agencies where all of a sudden they'll just like fire everybody and then lay low with just like one or two people. And then um, a few months later, they'll bring on a whole host of new agents, quote unquote agents who don't have any publishing experience, aren't getting paid and they'll burn them out and, you know, overwork them for a few percentage points on a few projects, maybe some of them will hit really big because replacing one of them is not a big deal. Because you're not paying them. Because you're like not paying them. So, like it's not an actual like you can see yeah. you can see how on the overall picture is you have more and more agents in the like in the field with less and less to work with in terms mm-hmm. of infrastructure. There is a bubble. None of this is good for writers. I mean, you can imagine like it's. Imagine querying and you sign with a writer and then, you know, six months later, they can't financially hack it and leave the business like that happens all the time. Yeah. And it's not good for writers. It's not good for the business. There is. There is a, a cap that the market can support for like. Agents that can stay in this business that can be supported and we are past that cap. That's not to say that like if somebody has a dream of becoming a literary agent that this is a bad career to get into. But what I'm saying is your chances of getting into this career, being successful and staying in it are very, very low right now because the um, the you don't you don't have as much wiggle room to like get good at the job because there it's just harder to sell books right now yeah. and yeah. like frankly when that bubble bursts we go we can return back to that like 25% number of the already established agents who are making money off of their colleagues who are not well supported and 
we are seeing that those are the people that the industry is like bubble proofing. Yeah. And yeah. So like we are not in the position to do this. So but like I'm wondering what it would be like if a larger agency that had a bunch of people working for it and had a lot more working capital than you and I do would say, Hey, like this is particularly hard right now, but we're investing in the talent that we have here and we want them to stay with us for a long time and reversed that and made their newer agents bubble proof. Maybe they, God forbid, paid them a salary. Yeah. And it's crazy. that That's crazy. Like, I just, it is, it is. It's, (laughs) I mean, I just, and I, you know, I think so broadly, um, you know, I was talking about this with someone, you know, the other day, like it was in a lot, in a lot of people's lifetimes, you know, right now that writer was like a job people had, Yeah. you know, and that is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking and mostly becoming like an amalgamation of one-off freelance gigs and contractor work and like you know, pieces like that is how you make a living as a writer. It's not Mm -hmm. like a job that someone, I mean, obviously there are places where you can be a writer as a job, but like it is, there are fewer of them. The picture is much more dire than it was. And I just see the same thing happening. Like what if in, you know, there's a version of this in 20 years where literary agent is not a job in the same way that it like, it's rather just good thing. We have a podcast. It's it's like a collection of, you know, it's a collection of one-offs. It's a collection of, you know, and what happens when that trickles to editors and what, like, I mean, it's just like the overall scene right now because of stuff like this in the arts is such that the jobs are getting worse. The talent is leaving because why would it stay? Mm -hmm. And, I don't know. It just, it frustrates me. And I just want anyone, when I see these survey results and I hear some of these quotes in this document, like, I just want those people to get what they're owed, you know, in terms of support from where they work. And I just worry that they're not. I just, I just keep coming back to like, I had a friend who was a car salesman and when he started, it was like, okay, and, and you sell way more cars than you do books, right? But it was like, okay, for the first, you know, month or three months, I can't remember what it is, we pay you a salary. And then when you start selling cars, like that commission will go into the salary until you end up making more money than that salary was. And then you just get paid on commission. And like they give you an adjustment period and a, and a time there. And like, imagine if somebody was brought on to an agency and it was like you know what we are going to pay you a salary at this amount adjusted for inflation every year of course for five years and of course if there's bonuses then you know if if the agency has like a banner year then that you know adjusts things but like that is what we are guaranteeing you time to develop and grow and meet people and make inroads and and create success we're giving you five years like imagine the types of people that would be in this industry and the types of books we would I was about see. to say and if you're if you'd rather not think about the people and just think about the books the books would get a hell of a lot better oh my very God, quickly the, too it, like because it, you'd have people able to think in more longer term you, you wouldn't they, be rushing to right, get things out on right, right, right. sub like it would, oh you could man, take on like, projects that needed a bit more work up front yes, you, like yes, like there are yes. entire galaxies of like 
sunk cost fallacies that agents do all the time. And like that math would change so drastically in a way that like I feel like you and I get a taste of because, Mm -hmm. you know, both of us have spouses with regular jobs. We don't live in New York City. Our cost of living is relatively low. Like all of these things. I mean, the other thing about that, though, is like we also get income in other ways. I mean, we do this show. We, yep. I freelance edit, you know, when I can. I mean, there's like, yep. you. we supplement. This was one of my responses to like the, you know, the piece, you know, like Publishers Lunch Mark, did like yeah. a, um, a companion piece to the data and they, you know, I was one of the people they asked about it and I basically said, yeah, like I agent full time and except un- when I months, can't. <laughs> in the months when, you know, the advance checks and the royalty checks are not coming in the way that I need them to. I pick up a few freelance edits. Like it, even now it's like, it's still a mix of things. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like it's a mix that I don't know. I mean, it's, it's tricky, you know I mean? It's, yeah. there's just no, everyone has some version of this. Writers yeah. do, we do. Um, it's, you know, it's but, hard. but even that, like we are still in a position we talk about this not through this lens, but a lot about you commissioning projects from scratch and, you know, me working, like signing an author for a book that doesn't end up being put out on submission, let alone sold for several years because we're working on something else instead that might fit the market better. And like, we have uh, 10 years into our agenting careers and being our own bosses, we have the freedom now to think about projects and invest in them in that way. But like, imagine if somebody smarter and younger and like more talented than us, because those people are out there. Oh my God. Right. Like oh every, my God. They're every everywhere. Every single one person listening to this is more talented than <laughs> Yeah. Like if those people just got a fucking break yeah. Yeah. in this business, yeah. like just man, yeah. I would have so much to buy at half price books. <laughs> Nice, nice loop. There. Thank that you. Really nice. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I I hope that wasn't too uh, Debbie Downery. It is. No, I mean, you know, I mean, maybe it was, but it's just what it is, you know? Yeah. We're just here to talk about the stuff. I just, I, I, I look at it and I, I look at this data and I think about it and I just, and I, and I meet new agents and I just become more and more sure that, you know, it is right for us to not have assistance, even though that would be super great. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. I would I, think be, about I feel it all the time. I feel like, like I would be like a superhuman if I had an assistant. And like, yeah. please, nobody email us and be like, I'll be your assistant <laughs> part time. Like, no, I like no, we it, can't pay you. It's not going to work. Uh, um, like we're we don't feel good about that. Uh, but like, man. The things that could happen there. Incredible. Um, (laughs) We're going to end it there. Um, Thank you so much for joining us uh, for this episode of Print Run. Please uh, tweet your support for Half Price Workers. Um, Half Price Books Workers. Yes. Full price. We want them full price. (laughs) We want the Half Price Book Workers to get full price. On their contract. And their... Pay the, pay the booksellers what they're worth. Which is like a lot. Like speaking of people way more talented than us. Yep. My goodness gracious. Yep. Um, half price booksellers. We love you. 
uh, other agents, we love you. Um, and like we don't... actually do, you know. I know I'm yeah. kind of a snot online sometimes, but I actually do want yeah. all of you to succeed. And if and if we're on good terms or admired by your boss, and your boss isn't giving us or giving you like the appropriate mentorship, uh, point them to this episode. We'll give them a stern talking to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> other than that, if you have anything you want us to cover, much like. Uh, the half price union member who emailed us about this episode, um, send it to us. We're at printroadpodcast at gmail.com and we would love to show for your union. Goodbye. Bye.